I don't know if you guys have worn a turtleneck lately, but it is awful. <laughs> I Just have never awful. worn a turtleneck in my entire life. A turtleneck? A turtleneck. <laughs> Tor- tortoise neck. A tortoise. It's a scientific name. Here's the deal, guys. We met up tonight. Jordan brought everybody Christmas gifts. Jordan, what did we bring you? A whole lot of nothing. Yeah, lumps of coal. So we have these packages in our hand that Jordan brought us. Um, <laughs> get, <laughs> Jordan's packages in her hand. Yeah, um, the one I gave Lance is twice as big. True. Yeah, Gibby and I have small really white packages. <laughs> Are we gonna dig in? Yeah. Are we gonna go. do it all at once? Sure. All right, everybody, dig in at once. Oh my gosh! Sydney <laughs> Lumet. <laughs> Making movies by Sydney Lumet. Lumet slash Lumet. Hey, you also got a movie. Awesome. And I got a movie. What movie did you The get? Legend of Bagger Vance, <laughs> which if you, if you remember, we did on, a, on an early episode of yep. Rotten Movies. We sure did. Jordan, thank you for thank not you getting so much, me Jordan. Legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Real present. You're welcome. Yeah, this is great. Oh, yeah, yeah, so this book, Making Movies, Sydney Lumet, which... It's Sydney Lumet. And the book is actually <laughs> pronounced Macking Mobiles. <laughs> Someone uh, recommended this to us, right? Uh, yeah, I don't remember who. Did anyone notice who did the quote on the cover? I would like to point out who's on the Read it, Gibby. Invaluable. I sometimes ask if there's one book a film goer could read more about how movies are made. John, John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And what to look for while watching them. This is the book. Rebert. Rebert. Roger Ebert. There's also, a, I believe, a uh, David so Mamet <laughs> quote somewhere. Is there a Carrie Yule's quote in here? <laughs> no, Carrie uh, Yule's. Wow. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, yeah Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Uh, awesome. Thank you very thank much, you, Jordan. Jordan. We're sorry you met us late in life and... Uh, we're terrible friends and don't give gifts to each other. Yeah. I didn't meet you guys late in life. <laughs> it was late in our life, I suppose. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Awesome. Thanks. I can't wait You're to welcome. Read this. Yeah. It's, it really is amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Can I, I play with it. this during the podcast? This is one I'll read. No. Absolutely not. Oh, should I have like put my book somewhere nice? I just threw it into the corner there. <laughs> This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Since it is arguably the most wonderful time of the year, we thought we'd pick our favorite Christmas movies. Merry Christmas, you guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to everybody. To start us off, say your name and your favorite childhood Christmas memory. I'll go first. My name is Hudson. I have a very clear memory uh, as a kid of going over to my grandma's house. She used to play piano, and traditionally she's a great piano player, but as she she got older she just got more and more kind of sloppy with it and so she used to play piano and we would just roll on the floor laughing at her i'm pretty sure but cool. i'm not sure she was in on the joke this is the saddest wow. christmas memory I've ever heard. and yet we're laughing rest wow. in peace grandma i love you love you this is kyle gibson my sister kelly and i were traveling through the air and uh, we went got an airport like in pittsburgh or something and it was snowing out and so they basically had to shut down the airport and kelly and i met up with a group of three other kids from random parts of life and we just ran ramsack around the whole place that's a lie that's a terrible kids movie <laughs> hell just happened <laughs> wait what movie is that i've seen that i don't movie. even know what movie this is yeah. the accompanied miners it's based on a this american life story i respect what you just did gaby had i done it i might have picked a little more well-known <laughs> less movie. obscure yeah uh, my name is jordan I'm wearing a turtleneck right now. It's awful, but it's a Christmas turtleneck. When I was driving up here, I remembered when I was a kid, probably like late elementary school, I used to borrow one of my mom's Christmas turtlenecks to wear to school in December. 
And I think that's my favorite childhood Christmas memory. It's been it's been a rough few years, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Saying you're wearing a turtleneck, I think, gives people this really skewed vision of what we're doing right now. Like we're all like drinking hot cocoa and sitting around a fire. And uh, this is Lance. My Christmas memory. You guys aren't going to believe this, but this really happened. Asleep Christmas Eve, late that night, I wake up to the sound on the roof above <gasps> me of what I swear sounded like hooves walking on the roof. Not joking. Were there creatures stirring? Not even a mouse, Gib. <laughs> that really happened, by the way. You know, they caught the guy. He, he went to prison. To, he, got, he got 12 to 15 for... For whatever. murdering my brother. <laughs> That's the part of the story I forgot. That, that end part, yeah. Wait, there were three hurts. Really dark, really dark. All right, we asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite Christmas movies were. Jordan, you take this first one. Sarah Peters said, White Christmas. Favorite Christmas movie, hands down. Classic Hollywood glamour with great music you can't help but sing along with, even if your family hates it when you do. Please keep listening, Sarah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never seen White Christmas. I have. I almost picked is it, it awesome? for this. Yeah. I've seen the musical it is. White Christmas. It is. It's a fun movie, and it's surprisingly funny. Like The comedy in it's really good and holds up. This is Angela Dawn. A Christmas Story. My sister and I watched it together in the 80s when it came out. You'll shoot your eye out. We still watch it every year, and my sister owns the leg lamp. It sounded like Joy Bayar. <laughs> <laughs> Does she own the actual leg lamp or just a leg lamp? A version of the leg lamp, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. Stick around, Angela. You might be happy with one of our choices. I wonder where the original leg lamp is. It's got to be somewhere. I would think right? so. Oh. All right, uh, Lance, you got this one? Yeah, this is John Carroll. Scrooge. It's classic Bill Murray film that doesn't seem to get much recognition due to it being a holiday film. <laughs> That's good. Whoa. Yeah. Moen Wilson. Whoa. Yeah. Hey, I don't necessarily your... feel like Scrooge doesn't get that much recognition, though. I feel like everybody Yeah, I think it gets it, right? a lot of recognition. I don't know. I agree with him. It, I don't think it does at all. It came oh, really? up a lot on our Facebook no. page, it felt like. Yeah, I think for a certain age of people, it gets a lot of recognition. If you want your favorites out on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. Can we talk real quick about like the severe lack of variety in Christmas movies? Like I, I felt like I was looking at, as I looked at this, I, I kept seeing the same movies over and over again. There was like the family gets together a movie. And this is yeah. like, oh, the, the religious girl and her religious boyfriend are coming home. But guess what? Her family's Satanist, <laughs> but it'll all work out at the end because right. Christmas. And then there's like the Santa at odds with something where like they take a famous care like Santa. It's like, Santa can't make it this year. He's sick. Good news. His Ernest is here to save the yeah, day. His younger brother, played by Jim Carrey, just got out of rehab and he's going to handle <laughs> Christmas this year. <laughs> the remake. Where it's the same story over and over again. It's like a Christmas carol, but we're going to do it a little different twist. It's got cats in it instead of people. I, I just like, as I went down this list, I just felt like I was seeing the same thing over and over, over again. And I think yeah. a lot of what drove my list was finding movies that just felt fresh and unique and weren't rehashed over like and over again. Like one about Hanukkah. Yeah, that would have been a good Christmas movie yeah. about Hanukkah. <laughs> There have been a slew of Christmas-centered horror movies in the last 10 years Yeah, or so. there's a lot of horror films. There's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of animated movies about it, too. Family comedies. Which I think Lance just covered. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, I've got a movie for my number three Christmas movie that's a little out of the ordinary. <laughs> really? Just kidding. It's about a family that gets together over Christmas. <laughs> totally fits in my first. <laughs> yeah. The Family Stone. It's the 2005 dramedy, which follows Everett Stone, played by Dermot Mulroney, as he brings his uptight girlfriend, Mary played by Sarah Jessica Parker, to visit his liberal family for the holidays. Everett is one of five kids and kind of the black sheep of the family in that he's traditionally successful and conservative, but he at least has a history with his family.
family, whereas Meredith sticks out like a sore, boring thumb despite all her efforts to fit in. What you just described is exactly what I was just making fun of two minutes ago. This is great. Keep going. Just because a movie visits familiar territory does not mean it's not a great movie. Just because a movie sucks doesn't mean it's not a great movie. No, that's kind of the case with this film. What is did, the case did, with this Who did film? you just agree with? Gibby <laughs> <laughs> comes in, makes a point, and nobody knows whose side he's on. Everett's ultimate goal is to ask his mom for their family heirloom engagement ring in order to ask Meredith to marry him. I feel like I could tell you how the rest of this movie ends. I've never even seen it, but keep going. The family never really gives her a chance, hoping for and expecting a better partner for their son. It falls somewhere between Meet the Parents and the TV show Parenthood. How, how does it fall in between those? It's called Meet the Parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is at times screwball silly, but it also fully embraces its awkward and uncomfortable moments, in particular a dinner scene where Meredith can't seem to stop giving her opinions, even when they are about their deaf gay son. When Meredith calls in her own sister to save the day, things get more complicated between her and Everett. So, I feel like you guys are really aren't giving this a chance. Oh, yeah, wow, I wish I was dead right now. I would rather be dead than to keep hearing about this. So I have seen this film. I saw it at the movie theater. It's not rare. Did you cry? That I dislike a film. But this is manipulative, contrived, and borderline hateful wow. drivel. Why would you pick such drivel? This is like one of those movies like Dan in Real Life or Junebug that thinks it's so smart and not your typical sappy, sentimental, popular film like a Marley and Me or a Stepmom because it's wrapped in indie filmmaker cred with a slightly offbeat cast. So everybody's playing thing kind of cool, but then there's random moments of complete wackiness. It's like a forced eccentricity. You know, instead of having a gay son, <laughs> how about we make him deaf and gay? Oh, there's a girl back home that the main guy missed out on? Wonder what's going to happen. The family has a secret. Oh, wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, the conservative new girlfriend the family is just now meeting doesn't get along with these wacky group of liberals. Never seen that before. Like, this is getting me angry just talking about it. <laughs> So if you had to guess like three things that would happen in a movie like this, what do you think they would be? Well, you're really putting me on it the spot. It doesn't matter here. because they all happen. <laughs> <laughs> I like this angry you know, baby. I know. You know it feels like a uh, like stand-up routine. <laughs> and another thing. Yeah. What's the deal with airplanes? <laughs> but I think what it does differently than a lot of other Christmas movies is it's incredibly honest. So, okay, first of all, there are incredible f- performances by some fantastic actors. There is a great cast. I'll give yeah, it that. It's Craig a great T. Nelson, cast and everybody overacts except for Craig T. Nelson nope. and Diane, Diane Keaton, yeah. Paul Schneider, Rachel McAdams, uh, Luke Wilson is especially great as Everett's slacker kid brother. But what really sets this movie apart for myself is that it's filled from beginning to end with brutal honesty, the ups and downs of family with all of its pride and prejudices. But when the movie takes a serious turn towards the end, it really hits home. Yeah, guess what that is. Don't guess what it is. Because <laughs> you, <laughs> you should watch it, the movie. You guess it right. <laughs> no, you cannot guess what it is. You feel like you're a part of the family, like you've been on this journey with them, and it's such an interesting and touching look at what makes family families love and occasionally hate each other and the importance of empathy even with those you've known your entire life so i have to say in fairness here i, I haven't seen this movie i watched the trailer and the trailer alone made me go nope i cannot watch this yeah. because what it looked like it was it looked like they were like oh let's make rachel at let's take rachel at mcadams but let's make her real by like untucking her shirt and messing her hair up a little bit and that'll make her like relatable and like I, but the you're trailer, just saying that because you have experience with rachel mcadams being no. in other movies that has nothing to do with the quality she's of the such movie. an awful character in this movie like there's nothing redeemable about her character except something sad may have happened to her well it's just not true I, at I don't, all I, don't, I loved all these characters and i thought they were relatable and they a lot of like people that i know in real life 
This is no way as wacky as the trailer makes it seem. So it's very unfair to watch it based on the trailer. Has they were trying to sell it as a holiday comedy, and that's not really what it is. Well, the trailer has three different jokes where someone. The whole joke is someone fell down. That's the whole. That's the whole. (laughs) That's the. That's the punchline. To be fair, again, we can't say that the trailer is an accurate representation. I'm sure that's the distributor, the studio, whoever you know, making it look like. I mean, but you guys don't like kind of dramatic, sentimental things either. So I mean, I'm not sure if the trailer was honest that you'd even want to see it. I don't like things that feel like they came out of an animal's rectum. That's my big (laughs) issue. This ties into a pick that I made in my list. This movie didn't seem like it had any subtlety to it. I guess that was my issue with it. The movie I didn't see. (laughs) 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 I'll I'll tell you what. I'll I'll watch this maybe over Christmas while I'm wrapping presents or something and I'll I'll report back. Well, I mean, it's just one of those movies that tells you how to feel at every given moment. Oh, yeah. yeah, Like this next movie you're going to talk about doesn't. It really doesn't. I got a few things to say about the next one. Go for it. What's your number three? In picking my films, I didn't go with anything unknown or anything uh, that people haven't heard of. I picked three really popular Christmas movies because when I think of Christmas, I think of these movies. So my first pick, or number three pick, is the 2003 Snoozer. comedy. Snoozer. You don't like Elf, Hudson? Here's the thing with a lot of well, these Christmas Elf. movies. Gibby, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get it out quickly. Enough. I think that a lot of these Christmas movies get a pass because they're Christmas movies and yeah. people rewatch them every year and I don't think that they're actually good movies. Including two of Gibby's Your choices. Picks. Actually, all three of Gibby's choices. Whoa. This this episode is surprisingly contentious <laughs> yeah. so far, given it's the holiday we're in. I know. All right, give me. So give Elf, me. the 2003 film by John Favreau. Real quick synopsis. Everybody knows what it is because everybody's seen it. But a story of a human named Buddy who was found by Santa one night as a baby and raised in the North Pole as an elf. And shocked one day to learn that he's actually not an elf, despite being over two feet taller than everybody else. So the movie follows him as he goes to New York to meet his dad and become part of a real family. There's no reason to explain anymore. I just really love this film because there's a sense of innocence and fun and just a lack of cynicism that just made me fall in love with it when I first saw it. How are you friends now? with me? You just yeah. describe the antithesis of everything I am. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. You know, one of the things in this movie, Buddy, is played by Will Ferrell. And to me, this is like the role he was born to play. And now you look at it, it's kind of like a no-brainer. This is obviously the perfect casting, the perfect guy to be in. But in 2003, it was really kind of a risk. Up to this point in his career, Farrell, he was by no means a guaranteed box office king. In fact, he'd only been the lead in one movie previously. You know what that was? Well, I'm looking at your notes. So Kicking yeah, I... and screaming. <laughs> that was after. Uh, Night at the Roxbury. Yeah. Oh. Hardly the foundation oh, yeah. you want to yeah. start. Um, so this was kind of his Farrell's first big foray into like a successful leading man. Yeah, this was his first elf, basically lead uh, role. He had done Old School six months before it came out, but he wasn't the lead of Old School. And, you know, up to this point, he was just the top kind of goofy guy on Saturday Night Live that had, you know, I think he'd stolen a couple of movies. If you look at Zoolander and even the first Austin Powers, but by no means was it a given that this was going to be huge. I'm actually going to kind of agree with both of you guys here because to me, this movie has two very specific halves to it's, it. It's two movies. It, it I, I, is. It's not one movie. The, the, fir- the first half, I, I'm with Gibby. I think it is a totally creative, fresh take on the whole Christmas thing. Yep. And that's awesome. By the end, you're absolutely right, Hudson. It turns into lame, you know, family it's, stone. It's well, type territory. In a way, I think that it's not as manipulative as Family Stone because it's not all leading that part. This is um, just kind of sorry, but that song when they all have to sing together <laughs> I think... in the park to make the sleigh work, I'm pretty sure that's pretty yeah. manipulative. No, I think that they kind of do that as like a winking to no. the camera no, to the audience. No way. No, nope. no. We'll way. have to talk to our friend John Favreau. Well, I, what I'll say though is that to me, the first half overpowers the second half. I agree. So 
so it makes it worth watching and definitely worth recommending. It makes it what, worth watching the first two thirds. Well, if somebody tells me they're going to put on Elf and I have to sit down and watch the whole thing, I'm okay with that. I don't know why I'm in that position where someone's forcing me to watch a movie, <laughs> but but I'll, I'll say this too: I, I was surprised looking on IMDb that this movie only has a six point nine now. Wow. So well, I am starting to wonder if this movie is slowly losing its appeal because you're right, Gib. For a few years, this was the new hot, fresh Christmas movie that everybody quoted, talked about, watched on Christmas, and it may still think, be ten to twenty years from now. I don't yeah. know. I think part of that is like Will Ferrell fatigue. Yeah, because for that you know five six years he was kind of untouchable in terms of comedy world. And this started it, then now people are kind of think it's old, and I think retroactively they may think they don't like this movie as much. But if you watch it, it's still really funny, and I think it's the most quotable Christmas movie of all time. Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. You sit on a throne of lies. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color for this? I, I, my guess is that this will still be a movie that is being watched 20, 30 years from yeah. now. And not necessarily because of the strength of the film itself, but just because of what it's up against. I mean, a good new Christmas movie comes out, what, once every 10 years? Yes, this was yeah. one of them. They're rare. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's different about this is it does have kind of a strained sense of humor with the talking stop motion characters there at the beginning. That, kind of come that's out of the nowhere. stuff that I, I love. I love that. Yeah, yeah all the stuff in on uh, the North Pole or whatever. Mm-hmm. And even if you, you know, the end, I agree, is kind of treacle. But there's a... Wow. Is that a word? Wow. <laughs> T-R-E-A-C-L-E. Treacle? Look, you like guys the third so and a prequel? This. Yeah, body, treacle. <laughs> No, it's a tree. So it is a word? Yeah, T-R-E-A-C-L-E. Oh, I never heard that word. Oh. should read more. Especially yeah, watch Spellbound. But I think it's just a good, fun Christmas movie that you can watch with the whole fam or buy yourself <laughs> and get a few laughs out. I whole, appreciate you saying. Whole fam, pick up Elf. some za, hanging out with the yeah. fam. Yeah, I appreciate some you. Nogs. You saved like three letters there. You saved a lot of time <laughs> yeah, by saying yeah. fam. That's good. Yeah, I don't have to edit those out later. All right, Jordan, you're number three <clears throat> from 1988. My number three pick is Die Hard. Finally, we one we all can agree on. Yes, directed so by it's a movie. Directed by John McTiernan. <laughs> this is the story of a charming and witty New York cop named John McClane who will stop at nothing to be reunited with his estranged wife Holly, even if it means going on a killing spree at a high. Christmas party in Los Angeles. <laughs> McLean, played by a hilarious Bruce Willis, is still living and working in New York, while Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia, it's so much fun to say, has moved out to L.A. with the kids to pursue a lucrative career at the Nakatomi Corporation. A real fish out of water, McLean clearly doesn't fit in with the corporate types, but is trying his best to woo Holly back Are you regardless. purposely making it sound like a wacky comedy? Just let me finish. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me finish reading this. (laughs) He's upset by Holly's use of her maiden name, and they begin to squabble almost immediately, and McLean's chances look slim. That is, until an uninvited guest shows up, a man named Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, in his feature film debut, no less, with an unruly entourage. They are very rude to the guests, and giving giving McLean just the chance he needs to show Holly just how great of a guy he is. I love this movie. I just think it's this great holiday romp about love and reconciliation and party etiquette. <laughs> Carl Winslow of TGIS Family Matters and Devereaux White co-star as McLean's comedic wingmen. I watch this movie every Christmas, the sequel as well, and it's it's usually the movie that starts to really usher in the Christmas spirit for me while I wrap presents or address holiday cards. It's a classic, 
and has now been aped countless times. Although it's rated R for a reason, so it's probably not one for the kids or even the grandparents. But if you're looking for a romantic action comedy for the holidays, look no further than <laughs> Die Hard. This so this movie has taken on a funny thing around the holidays, where there's there's this like angry social media force that dares you to say Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Have you seen these like memes that have started <laughs> no. to come out? Nah. There's this one I've seen recently that says there are two kinds of people in the world: people who think Die Hard is a Christmas movie, and people who are wrong. And people are really passionate about calling this a Christmas so, movie. Yeah. And, I mean, and I, I wanted to talk briefly. You you were you were hesitant about picking this. I was a little bit. Explain that. To Part me. of what you just said. That there's See, an obnoxiousness that comes along with everybody's like, "Oh, Die Hard's my favorite Christmas movie." Yeah, because it's cool to pick it. Now, what you have to understand about Jordan is Jordan is a very go against the grain type. He he doesn't like to go with the mainstream. And what's happened I, I, I is think that what's happened in a, is in a, <laughs> in a true light, in an accurate light. Yeah, I agree. Totally accurate. Hey, we're all Anyways. just into what we're into. Yeah, we all agree. I, I don't choose agree. things. Hey, we're all just other people, guys. Don't. So the go against the grain position had been to pick Die Hard as a Christmas movie, and I think the problem was that. That became so mainstream that Jordan was in a difficult situation because he was now the counterculture had become the mainstream. So he had to go back to the mainstream, the original mainstream. Yeah. And so that puts you in a tough spot. It did. Real pickle. And I, I'm proud of you for yeah. going against the grain of what had originally gone against the grain and was originally the mainstream to pick what had gone against the grain <laughs> to become the rebel against the mainstream. Well, I don't I, know what the hell I just I said. <laughs> You're like the salmon swimming up the mainstream. Yes. Yeah. Well, I realized that I don't view this movie as a as a action, you know, 40 stories of adventure or whatever. Do you not? That's not what you think no, of when you first think comedy. of this? Totally. It's hilarious. It's all about dude getting back with his wife. My thought on this, this whole like, I heard the Christmas movie, that that group was like, well, you know, it's an action movie that happens to happen at Christmas and the Christmas part of it is more incidental. But the more I looked at it, it actually, it deals with some kind of Christmassy stuff because I think you're right. This is, the, the heart of this story is a man trying to get his family back. Mm -hmm. And there's, there is some, there, there, that very much plays into the whole Christmas aura you know it's the family coming family, back together. yeah it is and so in a way i i i've kind of reversed my position on that like I, I did once think that this was just a thing people were trying to do to be like cool i'm gonna pick dyer as a christmas movie but I, but i think there is a legitimate like christmasness to this movie that I, I didn't see before until i rewatched it but here's a legitimate argument against that do you know when Die Hard was released Gibby probably does. 88? In the summer? summer. In the summer. Oh. We got another one of those coming up, too. Another summer? Yeah. Let's yeah, every like year there's summer? one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> another what? Another Die Hard? No, another movie, Christmas movie that was released in the summer. Oh. I want to talk about Alan Rickman real fast in here. He's phenomenal in this movie. He sure is. And, and for it to be his debut is fantastic. But, I mean, it's kind of sucks that we had to wait till he was 42 years old to you know, get on yeah. screen. Was he well, a theater actor previously? Yes, he a and he'd, he'd been in a number of TV movies before this, but right. this was his first like theatrical. Right, I and mean, so it's so kind of good. a bummer that you missed out at least 10, 15 good years of Alan Rickman. Maybe he was terrible then. He could have been. I mean, maybe part of him was just being the older hmm. guy. He is fantastic. He's now in this two movie. years older than I am. Yeah. Nice well, now suit. He's a lot older. Interesting tidbit for you folks out there listening: the very first film that we made as a group in high school was called Die Hard at GAC, mm -hmm. which was the name of our high school. Yeah, yeah. GAC was the name of our high school. And so we, <laughs> what, thought I thought thanks, I covered like, that. But yeah. just said, a lot of times I repeat what Lance says because what he says is so smart, like the name of our high school. Um, it may have been loosely based on Die Hard. <laughs> you tell from the title. How can the viewers see this movie? Die Hard? We have it on. No. We have it on Die, Die Hard, Hard or GAC. You'd have to come to my house. Yeah, we have it on digital video disc. We can probably actually upload it. Uh, we, we should do that. Uh, Lance, you're number three. 
Nightmare Before Christmas, Henry Selleck, 1993. This may surprise people. A lot of people think Tim Burton directed this film, but he actually did not. He yeah, was a I thought producer and writer on it. And it, it, his, I think his name is actually in the title. I think it's called Tim it Burton's is. Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, like I said earlier, the problem I've always had with Christmas movies is that for the most part, they're just very rehashed. So when you get a fresh creative take on Christmas, uh, it's always great. And, and that's what this film is. The story follows Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween town. He's bored with the redundant nature of his world where they just celebrate Halloween over and over again. One day while walking through the forest, he discovers a bunch of portals into worlds that exist for other holidays. Easter World, Valentine's Day World, and Christmas World. He enters Christmas World and is so taken with it that he returns to Halloween World and tries to implement Christmas there. Much of the delight of the film is watching this dark, gothic world trying to understand the concept of Christmas and how they can't quite seem to get it right. This is a movie I feel like I could watch with the sound off and still enjoy Mm -hmm. every minute Mm -hmm. of it. Because So it was done in stop-motion animation. That's one of the things it's most famous for. And you can see the painstaking work that went into every single shot of it. It took 100 people working for three years to make this because you have to have 12 movements on a single character to get one second of screen time. At the same time, I watch it and I find myself wondering how it got made at all because it's so creepy and it, and it had to have scared the hell out of kids to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, it's a very weird movie. And and this is actually why Disney declined to release it under the Walt Disney Animation Studios banner originally and they they, they put it under Touchstone. Oh, really? Yeah, my, my favorite... Did they change it since then? Yeah, they have okay. actually. Now yeah. if you go to the Disney store, there's like Jack Skellington's and yeah. Sally's all over. I guess they figure kids now are so jaded and screwed up anyway. So, you know, they're well. I took uh, my son to see it when it was re-released, and he's a real mess. Well, no, he he did. He made us get up and leave. Like oh, your son? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was probably uh, seven, eight, or something, maybe. Oh, I, I thought you meant this happened re-released. like last year. No. <laughs> I mean, the, the beginning is pretty terrifying. I mean, it's got some, yeah, some it, really it is, it is scary imagery. My favorite scene in the movie, and, and this is also a musical. I mean, this is a, yeah, it's definitely a musical. Yeah, it's 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 just it's like your traditional Disney song after song type musical. Um, my favorite scene is the one in which Jack Skellington discovers Christmas Land and the sheer joy he feels as he sings probably the most recognizable song from the movie, which Gibby does an amazing rendition of. Gib, can you do it? What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What is this? That's fantastic. It sounds just like him. <laughs> What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. There's children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. They're busy building toys and absolutely no one's dead. There's frost in every window. Oh, I can't believe my eyes. And in my bones, I feel the that's coming from inside. And looks just like him. He was doing the whole thing. <laughs> and that's actually Danny Elfman singing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, Danny Boingo, Elfman. Boingo. And voice. Yep. Yep. Didn't he do the voice too? No. Yeah. Voice acting? Chris Sarandon. I mean, Sarandon. Yeah. Uh, from Sarandon. The Princess Bride. Engelbert Humphrey. Yeah, not Engelbert, right. just Humperdinck. Yeah, Humperdinck, Humperdinck, Humperdinck. Huh. So you know, this movie hits a strange nexus between these three unusual subgenres: Christmas movies, goth movies, and cute movies. <laughs> and the, the creativity that comes from mashing those things together in a way I think only Tim Burton could have. It's it's a film. It's unique. It's fresh in a subgenre littered with laziness, and that's why it makes my list. Yeah, this movie is amazing. Uh, it's there's so much depth in every shot and. I've never seen anything like it. I would categorize it much more as a Halloween film than a Christmas movie. Really? I mean, I, it's not called Nightmare Before Halloween. It's, <laughs> right. And it's about it's sort of about not Christmas like wanting to celebrate Christmas. Right, but at the end they realize the importance of Halloween. Well, I think they realize they don't know yeah. how to do Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we spoiled that, 
<laughs> I always, I always wanted to see him go into some of the other worlds. Yeah, yeah. Because like you have these other portals. That to me was the coolest part when he's walking through the woods and he sees like a door with a heart on it, a door yeah. with an Easter yeah. Nightmare I wanted before to see Valentine's Day. Yeah. But yeah, incredible uh, character design. Which, how much did so this came out of Tim Burton's brain, right? And I'm assuming he, he wrote he did a poem. Initial... It was based on a poem. Yeah. Okay. He had, and he this is before he'd made anything. I think he had this he this idea and, and wanted to make this. Yeah, yeah. He was he was an animator at Disney back in the 80s, and he wrote a poem while he was there. And then I think after he kind of became you know Tim Burton, he wrote most of the script. He wanted to direct it. He just couldn't because he had other commitments. Yeah. And like I said, this movie took three years to make. I, I yeah. think he had probably so many other projects he wanted to make. I'm surprised he, he didn't just, do this as a children's book first it feels like it'd be a book does he do books no but i'm just saying like if i were him so and not, i had this so it's great not, idea i would have released i'm surprised this guy who never did a book didn't do this as a book <laughs> well, this of a is, movie where he could make way more money yeah i mean this really came out at peak tim burton after batman and edward scissorhands right after batman returns but then you get ed wood uh, right after it so i mean this was when he was kind of at his pinnacle yeah so it, it is right in the heart of that like sweet spot for tim burton's career you know tim burton was in consideration to direct this next film really? 1984's gremlins written by chris columbus directed by joe dante and produced by steven spielberg it was released in the summer of 1984 even though it takes place at christmas um, I wonder what the thinking is behind that. Well, the studio wanted a big summer movie and they didn't have one and they were up against some other big summer movies. Actually, this was released on the same day as Ghostbusters. Wow. Uh, and both of them, uh, Gremlins is the fourth highest grossing movie of that year behind only Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters, and Beverly Hills Cop. So it uh, it opens on a PI-style voiceover by the main character, Billy's father, who's a struggling inventor and he's looking for a Christmas pe- present for his son. At a mysterious old shop in Chinatown, he finds an adorable Furby-looking creature called a mogwai. The old man who sells it to him gives him three rules. One, don't expose him to sunlight. Two, don't get him wet. And three, don't feed him after midnight. He brings the pet home and they name him Gizmo. Billy, his son, is in his 20s, but clearly somewhat stunted. He's still <laughs> living at home, uh, dreaming of being a cartoonist, a little too dependent on his parents, and his best friend is a 10-year-old Corey Feldman. Uh, apparently, a lot of this was a holdover from an earlier draft of the script where he was 13 years old. Wow. We meet a few of the townspeople, but they're clearly set up to die later in the movie the exception being kate the love interest played by phoebe cates huh i just called that kate phoebe (laughs) kate who refuses to celebrate christmas for mysterious reasons when billy accidentally spills water on gizmo he multiplies into menacing creatures known as gremlins and it's up to billy kate and gizmo to save their town this movie is everything i love about the movies of the 80s and specifically the amblin style films it's such a mix of tones it's funny and scary and weird and emotional and heartfelt and wide-eyed and magical and genre hopping and a look at small town America, kind of suburban America. Yeah, this is a prototypical Amblin film. And, and a movie that, you know, I think we talked about this on another episode. Dante's come up a couple of times, but this movie hasn't lasted like I hoped it would. Mm-hmm. If you grew up in the 80s, this movie, I mean, you guys tell me if you're misremembering this, this movie was huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gremlin stuff was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like as big as E.T. I mean, Gremlin stuff was massive. Wait till they make a new one. Yeah, I mean, they are. They yeah, weren't in the remake it. To, oh, yeah. good. It's a terrible idea, I think. Sure is. Because part of what makes this work. I just recently went to Disneyland for the first time, and watching this movie is the closest you can get to a theme park ride on film. Hmm. So, uh, and I mean that as a huge compliment, that the creatures in the film are mostly puppets, and it feels like you're going through a ride, and I feel like I want to go on the ride over and over again, because I want to rewatch the scenes with the gremlins and like look at all the little hidden like mm-hmm. in-jokes in each of the scenes, because mm-hmm. they just kind of sit on these creatures, and I think that's part of what really makes it work. If this was done with like CGI or something, like it would not work. I think it's because of the combination of humor and 
horror and sadness. I mean, there's a deep tinge of sadness in this movie. The movie features one of the greatest monologues of all time when Kate reveals the reason she doesn't celebrate Christmas in the most horrific way to ever find out that Santa isn't real. So essentially, Kate tells the story of on Christmas Eve, they're at home and they can't find their dad anywhere who's supposed to come home and like bring presents to him. And then they wake up Christmas morning, still no sign of their dad. She can't find her dad. She's like nine years old, I think, when this happens. And the days go on and on and she goes to start a fire one morning realizes that something's blocking the chimney firemen came broke through the chimney top and me and mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird and instead they pulled out my father he was dressed in a santa claus suit he'd been climbing down the chimney on christmas eve his arms loaded with presents he was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck. Died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. It's, it's a horrible story, and at that point in the movie, you don't really have a reason to think anything quite that insane is about to come out. Right, yeah, because yeah. It, Because up to that point, it's I mean, gremlins are scary, but like there's a fun lightheartedness to it. I remember that just being like, what the hell well, just happened? E- even After the she way tells Dante films this, it's got this quirky twist to it where it's not as serious as it just sounded when I said yeah. it. And that's kind of what the whole movie is. is mm-hmm. it's, it's, this, it's this darkness and this funny and... And Gremlins says something very unique that not a lot of Christmas movies delve into very deep, which is that... That notion that for some people, due to a past event or a family issue or a death, Christmas is a complete nightmare. It's that time of year they dread. And that's something, I mean, if you'd stuck this particular message at the end of a Christmas story, it would have kind of fallen flat because it, that contradicts what a lot of the Christmas movies are about. And it works here because it's a message done against the backdrop of another nightmare, which is this idea of a bunch of creatures taking over a town. So it doesn't seem contradictory or out of place like it would in a lot of other Christmas movies. And when we come out victorious at the end, it almost represents that ability and hope of overcoming those Christmas demons a lot of people carry with them. And in that regard, I think it's a very positive, uplifting movie. The first draft of the film apparently was a lot darker. There's this amazing scene in the movie now where Billy's mom comes home where the gremlins have come out. Yeah. And she basically kills like five of them. And mm-hmm. each one in this really cool way because the dad makes these inventions. So she kind of kills them in the inventions. And, and there's huh. a blender one, right? There's yeah. a blender one. That. And one particularly one in the microwave, mm, yes. which got it's a, a lot of It's a very violent movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in the original version, his mom dies. And when Billy comes home, her head comes rolling down the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's like Chris uh, Columbus. Yeah. His dog gets eaten. Um, and it, it, they did say that Columbus originally wrote this screenplay just on, on spec. He wasn't expecting it to get just made. Just to give his kids night. Nightmares. And then Spielberg <laughs> read it and loved it and, and got it made. Speaking of Christopher Columbus writing dark films, he directed my number two pick, 1990 Christmas classic directed by Christopher Columbus. It was written by John Hughes. I've heard mm-hmm. of him. Who we've spoken of once or twice. You know, side note, why do I always get made fun of Pixar when Hudson has brought John Hughes at least 13 times? I can answer that very like quickly this. if you want. He doesn't select all of them at once. <laughs> John Hughes <laughs> wrote this in 20 minutes at an O'Charlie's in Schaumburg, Illinois. <laughs> Schaumburg? Did you Google a small town in Illinois. (laughs) My dad used to have to go up there for work. That's why I picked Schaumburg. 
So the film stars a precocious Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, seven-year-old who's accidentally left home alone as his large extended family takes a Christmas vacation in Bronx. So mom was played by the wonderful Catherine O'Hara. She doesn't even realize this until half they're halfway over the Atlantic Ocean. So while this happens, a whole neighborhood has been scouted by a couple of bumbling crooks, Harry and Marv, looking to rob these upper middle class homes while the families are away. Now it's up to Kevin to save his house. I will say this movie does an incredible job at setting that up to be realistic. The right. fact that they leave him in mm-hmm. there. Like yeah, they cover like note. every possible It does. What it doesn't do as good a job of is dealing with how lazy and inept the authorities are in this situation. <laughs> All they had to do was walk up to the door and go in the house and trust that what the parents were saying was accurate. Like, I, I don't understand why the police didn't just resolve this really quickly. Like, they didn't break the door down? Probably, yeah. Probably yeah. because there wouldn't be a movie if they had. Yeah. We, well, yeah. we want there to be a movie. Well, there goes my point. I actually kind of had a hard time choosing this one over the sequel, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. I Even though I think, that was difficult. I think Home no, Alone 1... Well, okay, I'm terrible. getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> getting, Home Alone is a much better film. I know that. Don't More get... Don't get this is not contrived. a good place to get. We don't, want to, we don't want to talk about Home Alone 2 for five minutes. But Home Alone 2, I, I literally remember watching three times in a four-day span over the opening weekend. It wasn't your choice, so who cares? Wait, you would have no, been I like went. in high school. Yes, then. I know. I was a freshman <laughs> in high school God, at this, this time. this is getting sad. So it's probably... Probably not shocking to the listeners. I did not have a girlfriend, nor talk to girls, or really have any friends at all. Did you hang out with you too? then? No, and not at so this point. Why? This is uh, <laughs> November of our freshman year. I was a smelly kid in the back of the class. Why are we still okay. talking about this? Yeah. This so is, uh, <laughs> one thing that I always kind of forget about this film, and it's shocking when I watch it, is that it's it's really violent. Like the last thirty minutes are super violent. And if you think of it like realistically, if a kid actually did these things, those burglars would be dead, and then the kid would have to live with that for the rest of his it's, life. It's it's a style of comedy called slapstick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I didn't think of this as a violent. It, it turns into like Wiley e. Coyote Roadrunner mm-hmm. at the right. end. And I remember going back and watching this movie a few years ago, and just assuming by the end it would get boring and stupid, and I'd want to turn it off. But I was surprised how engaging all of that stuff still is at the mm-hmm. end. Like I kind of just turned my brain off and just went with it. Yeah, I've always fun. loved this movie. <laughs> really? fun, always, it's yeah. a fun Christmas movie. Yeah. Is Macaulay Culkin a terrible actor in this film? <sighs> yes. I can't tell if he's awful or if that's just or if he's him. perfect. For right, it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I don't think it matters. This this is not some serious family drama. This is. I, mean, I think he plays this part perfectly. But hang on. But there are very dramatic parts to it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, it, and it turns into a. I mean, the whole the the thing with him and the neighbor. So we'll get into that for just a second. But there's a neighbor next door that there's a legend in the you know in the in the neighborhood that he. I don't know if it was like he killed his son. Or, right, yeah, but yeah. he's this feared kind of old man monster. And Macaulay Culkin is afraid of him, and they start to develop kind of a relationship. And by the end of it, they're friends. And yeah. they're there's, there's a, there's it's a human... totally the John Hughes thing we talked yeah. about, yeah, where yeah. he like steps it up a bit and creates this emotional center to it the It starts movie. with absurdity and yeah. silliness, and it ends with a, a truly heartfelt story, and that that was really nice. This movie, I remember when I saw it, I, mean, I guess I saw it when I was 12, and I, it made me have this fantasy of getting left home alone. And, <laughs> okay. and well, now, every kid did. That's what was so great well, about the movie. now I get to live that fantasy every day. Every <laughs> night, I get to be home alone, and it's, it's not as cool when you're 38, but huh. it has its perks. <laughs> I do want to bring up a great John Candy cameo in this film, uh, yeah. uh, which the I'd Poker forgotten about King. until Yeah, he played the Carpet King, and he's helping Kevin's mom get back to the house, and there's this really funny scene where they're in, the, and it's kind of a John Hughes, just a random bit of comedy, but where his mom, he's trying to console her in, in losing her kid, and she said, Tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? No. No. But I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. We left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. 
all day. You know, when we went back at night, when, you know, when we came to our senses, and there he was. Apparently, he was there alone all day with a corpse. Now, he was okay, you know, after six, seven weeks. And I came around, started talking again. Uh, but he's okay. You know, they get over it. Kids are resilient like that. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Well, you brought it up. I was just, you know, trying well, to cheer I'm you up. I'm sorry I did this movie is super quotable, and so the part of it is like you can't escape Home Alone because you're constantly, you know, people are making references to it. Great music, too. John Williams yeah. did the score. One of the things I thought recently is that feeling, and I don't know if you remember this or not, the first time you ordered a pizza on your own, like mm, for yourself, yeah. Yeah. that was amazing. Thrilling. Was like one of the best moments of my life. I do associate this movie with pizza a lot because they're eating pizza at the beginning, and I'm always very hungry when this movie <laughs> yeah. starts. Well, and he orders um, pizza on his own, too. I don't know. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I know we spent like three minutes talking about it, but I guess part of what's funny to me is that there wasn't an alternative solution to the problem. <laughs> like, did they not know anyone else in the town they could have called to well, Everybody swing by? was on vacation. Yeah, they're all Every down. single person they that were. they knew they in were. the city was on vacation. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. My number two is Three Godfathers. John Wayne stars in this 1948 John Ford Western. The Duke plays Robert Marmaduke Sangster Hightower. He's the leader of a burgeoning bank robbing trio. After robbing the town of Welcome, Arizona, they are chased out of town by Sheriff Buck Sweet. A lot of good names in this movie. But they are able to escape into the desert a couple days before Christmas. While in the desert, the outlaws come upon a covered wagon. Inside, they find a woman on the verge of giving birth. They assist in the birth, but the mother dies as a result. Right before she dies, she names the three outlaws as the godfathers of her child, and they vow to take care of him. They take inspiration from a Bible that she had when they find the story of the three magi who travel across the desert to see Jesus. And the outlaws set out to deliver the boy to a town across the desert called New Jerusalem. So it's kind of like so three sounds, men and a baby. Yeah. It is <laughs> like sort three fugitives. Of, it is sort of like three men and a baby. Except in this, they're trying to unload the child as quickly as possible. <laughs> they don't know how to take care of this baby, but they yeah. actually really try and are able to keep this baby alive. So like three men and a baby. That's funny. That sounds like a really good movie. I mean, it's a good idea for a movie. Yeah, it's a great idea for a movie. I'm trying really, to imagine sounds- John Wayne in this situation. That's that's like really funny to me. Yeah. yeah. Really it, it makes sense when you see it. Okay. Wait, is it funny like there are comedic? funny no it's i mean it's not a comedy it's a right. it's a like that coyote got the baby let's get him <laughs> what's well, a dingo but yes whatevs <laughs> well obviously this is a very loose retelling of the story of the three magi <laughs> i'd say so <laughs> yeah. i don't remember the three magi delivering christ no certainly not or being robbers no but we, we don't know. we don't know i mean That's they true. were they could be three wise is this harry carey jr the son of harry carey yeah different no. harry carey but i'm but not uh, this i'm getting there because i wanted to hear you do a imitation of harry carey going to see the baby jesus <laughs> hey it's the baby jesus <laughs> Hey, here's some frankincense. <laughs> some myrrh. Like, what's going on? Yeah, that would be a very different movie than this one. Uh, this one is a fantastic tale of three very bad men who make a promise and care for an infant in the face of incredible hardship and at the risk of their own capture and even death. It's a story of redemption and salvation set in the Old West and stunningly directed by John Ford. This movie is so incredibly beautiful. And part of that is that it might be the windiest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Other than Twister. <laughs> there are so many amazing shots of an incredibly windy desert. It's it's huh. awesome. Uh, and John Ford was no stranger to beautiful landscapes, but these shots in particular are, are second to none. I'd say more beautiful than Twister. So when you when you picked this movie, you, you would send a text saying, I'm picking Three Godfathers. And I thought you would pick the Godfather trilogy. <laughs> and and I kept trying to justify in my head how this made sense. I was like, well, in the first one, yeah, they're, they're shopping for Christmas. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. 
I could see that. And then last night it occurs to me, I was like, this has nothing to do with Christmas. Why did he choose this? And finally I thought, well, maybe there's a movie called Three Godfathers, but I would have heard of that, surely. So I go on IMDb and I look it up and sure enough, there's Three Godfathers. I'm like, oh, this is what he meant. But then I look at the movie and I see no Christmas <laughs> relation at all. So I was that's, at that point I text her, I was like, Jordan, what the hell did you choose here? I, I don't understand this. Well, it's interesting. This, this Three Godfathers story had actually been made into movies before this. And Harry Carey... Why? Uh, <laughs> different Harry Carey. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> who was a good friend and mentor to Ford, had actually starred in both of the silent versions. So when Harry Carey died in 1947, John Ford decided to make this again in tribute to him and cast Harry Carey's son, Harry Carey Jr. Uh, I'm so confused. What? Yeah, mm. it's crazy. And it was the beginning of Harry Carey Jr.'s career, which he had a, a long and, and prosperous one. Illustri- um, he was even in Gremlins. Harry Carey Jr. was in Gremlins? It was, according to the Internet Movie Database. So I researched this movie, and um, I was looking on the trivia page for IMDb, and this is one of the funniest trivia things I've seen. When John Wayne is greasing the baby boy, Robert <laughs> William awesome. Pedro, it is evident that the baby boy is actually a baby girl. So in that's covered wagon, they find a, a book that the mother had of how to care for a baby. And in that book... Put grease on it. There's a thing that says grease the baby. So they find a bucket of grease, and they like put a giant John Wayne-sized handful <laughs> of grease on the back of this baby, and they just grease the baby it is crazy okay you want to you hear what my first thought of it was they're trying to deliver the baby and the baby won't come out so john wayne's like get some grease so there's this five minute scene of these three dudes trying to get no. grease yeah. in the birth canal and then it the pops baby. out and like slides along the floor <laughs> no no i feel like we need to write this movie now. much more serious I, i've never actually heard of this movie before you brought it up and i I just Googled Three Godfathers and a movie co showed up. I didn't wait for two weeks to wonder why you're picking three different Godfather films. But, uh, <laughs> was that a, was that ooh, a, yeah, that was a knock? I mean, I just got, I'm bad boy. You're lucky I don't grease you. <laughs> the bad anyway, boy of yeah, Googling. I'd, I'd never heard of it, which is, you know. It's, Not shocking. Yeah, since yeah. You haven't really heard of it. I've heard a lot of movies. But the second thing is, you say this is a serious movie, but every still on IMDb of it is like they're acting all crazy and goofy. Yeah, it looks like, like a comedy. Smile. It looks like well, a comedy. Well, that's a still. Even the description. Like, like the scene where they're swinging the baby around by the umbilical cord. Yeah. <laughs> this wow. this movie is is actually like a, a really harsh but heartfelt story. It it it's incredible. Lance especially would love this movie. Yeah, I want to see it. it I it, like the comedy version in my mind better. I know. I, I think you might enjoy it too. It's really beautifully shot and it's such a neat story. How often do you see a movie about bad dudes make a promise and to keep it turn into really good dudes and yeah. sacrifice everything? That's kind of cool to do what's right. Oh, like Three Men and a Baby. Hey, great pick, Jordan. Uh, Lance, your number two. A Christmas Tale, 2008 film by Arnaud Desplechin. This French film follows the story of the Vuillard family. I'm about to say a lot of French <laughs> names wrong, so just bear with it, me they're, here. They're not easy. A family plagued by a history of illness, grief, and conflict. The matriarch, Junon, played by French legend Catherine Deneuve, one of Jordan's personal favorites, yeah, has famous. cancer and is in need of a bone marrow transplant if she is to live beyond a few months. Against the backdrop of the Christmas holiday, the family must come together to get tested and find out who is a compatible donor. This coming together brings out old wounds, including a sister who had banished her brother from the family, the remembrance of the death of a sibling many years before, and the ever-present specter of Junon's illness. Um, We haven't gotten into a lot of foreign films on this show, at least not foreign language films. One thing you quickly notice is that different cultures and countries seem to be, for a lack of another word, better at certain things. For example, I I found that a lot of Asian markets, for example, seem to be better at action films and making interesting action sequences. Mm -hmm. And, And one thing European films, and especially French films, are great at dealing with is human drama and relationships. 
relationships. And that's because they're very good at subtlety and meditating on things that might get treated with a hammer in other cultures like ours. And I, um, I also feel like they don't try to like whitewash everything in some like forced right. happiness. Now, let me say, I, I know that in my description I made this sound like a very depressing movie, but the subject matter is treated with a surprising levity and a casual tone. There are brutal exchanges back and forth that in an American movie might lead to fistfights, but in a French film are treated with laughter. And in that regard, it might seem strange to an American viewer because... And, it, and one fistfight. There is one fistfight where somebody kind of goes too far. You mean you as an audience member are laughing or them as characters them as are char- laughing? Them as characters are laughing. So the French just seem to deal with human frailty differently. They're more understanding of it and tolerant of it and it's why a film like this works better under their guidance there's a scene for example where one of the sons is, is drunk stands up to give a toast at dinner and he calls his mom and dad a very unpleasant word that begins with a c and rhymes with bunt <laughs> he's so drunk he passes out and in an american film this would have been the most tragic moment but in this movie when he passes out everyone starts laughing and goes back to their dinner and that makes this movie so much fun to watch because the reactions and dynamics are so much different from what we'd expect as we watch this film we become onlookers floating around the house as people deal with each other dig up old wounds start new relationships discover old family secrets and try to come to terms with what it means to be a family and that age-old problem that you don't get to choose who you're related to this is the kind of movie where i get to the end and i just think to myself like how the hell do you write a movie like that Mm -hmm. like it's there's so much going on and it's so it's two and a half hours long I loved this movie. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It is bizarre. It it is bizarre. And I I didn't go, there were so many different dynamics going on between so many different characters. And I debated going into them, but I think you just need to see it for yourself. There's too much to try and explain. It would have just been, you know, five minutes of me saying this person and this person and this person meets that person. It's too much. But at the same time, it's not hard to follow either. No. And one of the difficulties in films like this oftentimes when you get these big ensemble casts is that it's like I need to sit down and write down everyone's names on a pad. So when they reference it, I can go back and go, who is this? Who is this? And in the film, film has a lot going on but it makes it easy to digest well and there's only nine people in it or yeah or however many and i mean it's again bizarre some of it is so real and other parts of it are so out there that i can't imagine a family actually interacting like this right but it doesn't matter it's so entertaining and i think essentially very touching mm-hmm. i could i couldn't really relate with any of these people because they're mm-hmm. so out there mm-hmm. and europeans just like you said have this way of doing family drama it's and just different it's just there's something different about they're it just so much better than us i, I you know I, this... I, I know you're joking kind <laughs> of but i i did hesitate in some of the ways i'm saying things does make it sound like i'm saying they're better i'm really not no, i'm really not trying to kidding. say that i think they're more subtle and i think in some ways that works better and in this type of film it does work better in other types of films french film movies i personally don't really love french films like mm-hmm. of all the different nations it's one of my least favorite nationalities of movies but in certain in certain types of movies it works really well and it works so fantastic there's no with the like a uh, wacky american cousin who's your way in on this movie Mm-mm. this movie was not made for the american market in in any way and i think that is really Mm-hmm. I think that is very telling of the difference between these sort of European dramas and, yeah. and American dramas, where this isn't something with this big climax that's going to tear your heart out. In a strange way, this is a very like consistent film, yes. front, front to back. It's not it's not formulaic in any way. Exactly. It avoids all the standard trappings that you would expect from an American film. Mm-hmm. So I remember when this film came out and getting rave reviews. I unfortunately never saw it, but I'd like to. Let's talk about that some more. About how he'd like to yeah, see it. How I'd much like- would you like to see it? It's not strictly drama. About halfway through, I was like, is this actually a horror movie in a weird way? Like it's got it jumps around genres and, and sort of teases all these different genres in so yeah. many ways that it never feels I mean, again, not formulaic, but not even like genre mm-hmm. specific 
Yeah. But in this seamless way that just really works. Yeah, I think I think Hudson Gibby, I know neither one of you has seen this. I think you'd really enjoy it. I mean, for for me for me it was just a great find because mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, I thought I'd seen all the good Christmas movies and then this one just blew it out of the water for me and this has definitely become part of my yearly rotation. I, I will say oh, really? I don't you watch I, it every year at Christmas? I, I I'm going to now. Oh, yeah. I, I bought it I bought but it last year. I saw it last year the first time. It was it's a criterion collection. Yeah, and I'm gonna lose ten pounds this year. <laughs> I've been there before. <laughs> So that same director made a TV special in 1965. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We should just have fictional segues. (laughs) I think he would have been five years old when he made that. I feel like I haven't cheated on the podcast yet, so I'm going to cheat a little bit today. Don't don't cheat on us. I'm going to cheat a little bit today. Since this is technically a 30 minute 1965 TV special, but I don't think you can talk. Which was never shown in theaters. Which I don't think you can talk about Christmas movies without talking about a Charlie Brown Christmas. I think we could have. Yeah, I think we probably could have. I'm going to defend. I'm going to defend you here, Hudson. And, I, I, and I'm not going to say you're not cheating a little bit, but I'm okay with I it. I just said I'm cheating a little bit. A lot bit. Gibby, you are the master of cheating. <laughs> you have no, yeah, no place to talk. You've lost all credibility. I, I, I actually support your choice. I mean, I think you can choose whatever you want. Thank you, Jordan. Well, let's not just turn the podcast off, though, because he hates this. Oh, and sorry. Or maybe he wants to hear about it so he can yell at it. He wasn't listening to it anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The movie is the first Charlie Brown special based on the Peanuts comic book strip. I'm sorry, uh, the what? Peanuts comic strip, and it follows Charlie Brown, a kid struggling with an existential crisis around Christmas. His friends all seem to be happy and obsessed with presents and cards and decorating, but he just can't seem to shake his depression. His pal Linus says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. And I feel like that line really gets across the kind of charm of what this is. His friend Lucy suggests that he direct the Christmas story play in order to bring his spirits up. But as he does, he's hit over the head over and over again by his friends. When he returns from buying a pathetic Christmas tree for the pageant, they all attack him saying, Boy, are you stupid, Charlie Brown. What kind of a tree is that? You are supposed to get a good tree. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I told you he'd goof it up. He's not the kind you can depend on to do anything right. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Completely hopeless. Rats! You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. Good lord. I know the way that these kids attack Charlie Brown and him being such this like sweet character and kind of this deep character. But eventually he's reminded by Linus, the true meaning of Christmas, um, through this really powerful telling of the Christmas story in this minute long monologue where he talks about the birth of Jesus. Um, and it's just this, it's this moment in the short where he, they just kind of pause and go through this story. And to me, it just played kind of so sweet and so powerful. And ultimately Charlie Brown's friends come around to help him as they make his pitiful tree into something beautiful. Uh, it's one of the most peaceful, beautiful, innocent, idealistic, witty, and unique films I've ever seen. And there are a couple of things the filmmakers did that I think made it so special. For one, Charles Schultz, the creator of the comic strip, was heavily involved in production and wrote the script for it. It was cast with real kids that lived in the director's neighborhood. So it's these subtle, realistic performances that give it so much charm that they're not 
professional voice actors. That's cool. I didn't know The that. jazzy score produced by Vince Guaraldi makes it feel just so kind of old-timey and charming, or at least to us today. Schultz fought hard against the network who wanted a laugh track added in order to keep it moving, but I think it's the kind of quiet pacing that makes it what it is. Yeah, that would have ruined Oh, that would have destroyed yeah. it. And the network and the main sponsor, Coca-Cola, were apparently unhappy with the final product and expected it to flop, but it found an audience. Nearly half of the available TVs were tuned in to watch Charlie Brown Christmas when it premiered, and it has wow. become the second longest. I'm sorry, half insane. the TVs in the country? Yep. Well, in Schaumburg, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> half Schaumburg. In the country, but that's what TV was like back then. It was like, you know, an entire country would And there were only, well, there's it. only three channels. There were only, <laughs> yeah. there were only three 30, TVs. There were only 30 <laughs> TVs. Yeah, there were 15 yeah. watching them. This movie has sort of become like the background noise of Christmas for our culture. Mm-hmm. It's beloved, that's and you true. hear the music from it everywhere, and you flip by it on TV, and I'm not sure how many people actually watch it regularly. This got me thinking about, I can't even tell you that much about Peanuts. And if you ask me, I would say, yeah, I love Charlie Brown, but I can't tell you why. And I actually had to really stop and think about this. I don't think Charlie Brown is particularly funny. I don't recall having a particular like kinship or relatability to this group of characters. But I think what I kind of landed on is that like inside each of us, there's this spectrum that on one end is like that crass, crude part of us that likes, you know, the dirtiness. And then on the other end, there's like a, a wholesomeness. And I think this Everybody kind of goes up and down on that spectrum. I mean, you've seen you've seen a rash of like Bad Santa and like Christmas movies right. that come out that are kind of crude and dirty. And this speaks to that other end of the spectrum that all of us have in us somewhere. That I think deep down we do have this intensely wholesome side that wants to connect in some way with something that is very wholesome. And Charlie Brown gives us that. Yeah, but I would I would also say that it's not it is all that, but it's also really clever and really intelligent and really interesting that I think it it was probably super weird when it came out in 1965. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it has become kind of bad grown noise. And it was that for me. And I rewatched this last year. We were looking for something Christmassy to watch and I rented it or purchased it and just fell in love with it. Like yeah. I couldn't believe that I hadn't like paid attention before. Gibby doesn't love it. Gibby, no, you- I think it's great. I mean, what I was reading about a year ago, I read this article about Charlie Brown and, you know, years later how Snoopy kind of killed it because it became this real cutesy thing it was not what Schultz originally intended. Because if you look back at the original Charlie Brown strips, certainly in the late 50s, I mean, this gets pretty dark, and there's a lot of, like... You mean, like, a dark and stormy night? No. No, like, uh, just a lot of despair and hopelessness in it. Like, I guess some people were feeling in the 50s with the Cold War and all that. And and Lance had sent a text earlier in the week. It's like, I don't get why, why is Charlie Brown so loved? And to me, it's because Charlie Brown is a bit of a loser. And I think it's something that we can, certainly I can identify with. Yeah, I can't that, relate with that at yeah, all. Yeah, you can't really. You know? <laughs> I'm pretty bad. you're a winner. You guys are all winners. But I think that one of the reasons he's it stood the test of time, too, is that, I mean, he just gets kicked and kicked and kicked, but, you know, eventually gets and back he up. he can't kick anything. Yeah. Can't even kick a ball. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there are many other characters like that. Yeah. I think he's very unique in that way, and so he gets all of that adoration for being that character. I mean, I think part of what makes Peanuts uh, the strip work is it's kids dealing with adult issues. And, and, that's, there, and there that's, are no adults, is, right. is another yeah, aspect yeah, yeah. of it. And that's kind of the bit behind it. Mm-hmm. Gibby, your number one is yet another Christmas classic played nonstop over the holidays. 1983's A Christmas Story. More and like a Christmas bory, am I right? <laughs> yes, you are right. Dude, I mean, do I really need to explain this, guys? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. There's a kid named Ralphie. He wants a Red Ryder BB gun. A Red Ryder BB gun. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start. <laughs> I mispronounce things as much as you do. I can't laugh. 
<laughs> okay, so there's a kid named Ralphie. He wants a Red Ryder BB gun. His mother, teacher, and Santa do not want him to have it. And there's other things that happen. So this film is based on the writing. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you do that more often? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so this film based on the writing. Saved me about five minutes. So this movie's called A Christmas Story, and there's some other things <laughs> yeah. that happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on the writing of Gene Shepard, who was a comedy writer, uh, kind of a memoirist. Is that the right word? I don't know. Memoirist? I said eccentricity correct earlier, so I can only get... <laughs> I only have so many correct pronunciations in my mouth. <laughs> Where speech originates. <laughs> so Gene Shepard wrote many stories uh, about his upbringing in 1940s suburban Indiana and his normal but also kind of crazy life. And, and this movie, you know, kind of seems like it's played out to people now it, because it's on so much. But I think it's still a really funny movie. And if you can watch it without the that, I guess, veil of the last 20 years, seeing it every Christmas over and over again and just watch it for what it is. I mean, it's still got a lot of humor and it. it's a lot of funny. And it's just it takes me back to being a kid. More uh, like a Christmas snorey. That's <laughs> <laughs> better. I should have gone with that yeah, one earlier. Yeah. Well, it's just, use a it's, it's obviously a Christmas movie, but to me, it's almost more about the wonder of youth and childhood. It, it, I think it does a great job of recapturing what it feels like to be a kid. I mean, not just a kid in 1940s suburban Indiana, but it spoke to me, a kid of the 80s in suburban Nashville. Well, it, I think he deals a lot in like the unfairness and absurdity of childhood and what a difficult position kids are put in with so many pressures and conflicting expectations. Like, I mean, Ralphie, for example, he gets terrorized by, by a bully and has to fight back, but he also has to deal with the potential wrath of his father if he does fight back. He gets hammered with messages about how he needs this BB gun, but then he's being told he's crazy to want it because he'll shoot his eye out. And kids are constantly put in these difficult situations, and I think we all remember that, and this movie does a good job of kind of highlighting those moments. I've never understood the appeal of this movie. None of it reminds me of childhood. Yeah. Like it's, it's, this movie <laughs> always seems so, so foreign to me. I don't understand. I really so, don't understand it. I mean, to me, this is what kind of speaks to me personally about it, and that it's like, you know, when you're a kid, you have unrealistic dreams and expectations that especially creep up around the holidays. You know, and in particular in this, it's to get that one gift. Uh, and then there's that natural deflation after you get that gift. And yeah. it doesn't live up to what you had hoped and dreamed for it. But it can't just be me who had the. I mean, were you guys ever disappointed by that one thing you had to have at Christmas? You know, like that that super hot uh, yeah, wheels Yeah, pretty track. much every single time yeah. until adulthood. And then you, I don't know, it was more appreciative as a kid, like a toy's a toy. Like there's only so much you can do with a toy. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, you, but you, the problem is, as a kid, you're an idiot and you keep forgetting that right, over and yeah, over yeah, again. Yeah. And then you get oh, the next absolutely. one and you think that's the one that's going to fulfill yeah. you. I think the answer to your question, Gibby, is uh, yeah, that happened every single time. There was no toy I got that I I don't even know if I still have or that completely <laughs> fulfilled me. You, you know, play with even a month right. later usually. Yeah, but it's so important to you. Yeah, you know, leading up to Christmas and then you get yeah. it, and you're like, oh. GI Joe had this big space shuttle and it like took a week to put together and then it's so big and fragile. <laughs> that you can't play with it because <laughs> right. every time you open a door, it falls off yeah, and you have to yeah. spend an hour putting it back on. My parents told me a story a couple weeks ago about when I, I guess I was about five and they gave me a bike for Christmas, but it was a used bike. Like it was a cool bike, but it was used. And apparently they rolled it out from the back as my big present. And I went, why is it dirty? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't clean it off. Is it old? Yeah. <laughs> I think I like think mud it's... in the tires and <laughs> they'd ridden it around the night before. It yeah, says like Sally is written on it. And... I think it's undeniable that this is an extremely well done movie. It's got some great stuff in it. It's I'm not surprised it's become as popular a Christmas movie as it is. On the other hand, it's also impossible to deny that I am sick and tired of this movie. Like I've just I've seen it so many times, and it's a movie that I think often gets kind of devoured in bits and pieces. Like as I yeah. think about this movie, I don't ever think about sitting down, hitting play, watching the whole thing for two hours. Right. 
what I think about is like 20 people in a house. <laughs> it's on in the background. You catch five minutes. You see the scene. Oh, yeah, this is the scene where the Santa kicks him down the slide. And, and that's kind of how you but intake it. But that's kind of what the movie is, though. It's kind of a series of short films. Yeah, it's, it's episodic. A, it's a, yeah. it's a series of visionettes. <laughs> Look at that. Visionettes? Wow. <laughs> Boom. I am prequel visionettes. <laughs> Hang yeah. on. I think that's definitely not right. I don't think right. that's not a word. I don't think Vignettes? that's a word. Vignettes? Vignettes? Vignettes. I think it's Vignettes. Vignettes? Vignettes? <laughs> Spell that for me. Like V-I-G-I-N-E-T-T. Vignette. Yeah. Vignette. I think it said Vignette. You said Vignette. And you continue to. Yeah, it's a series of vignettes. Oh, you said vignettes. I thought you meant you like saying, small visions. You're saying vignette? It's a series of vignettes, guys. You're I take back vignette. I take back my arrogance about treacle. <laughs> yeah, that's pronounced probably, treacle. Yeah, probably also mispronounced. <laughs> this treacle. is my favorite moment in any of our 12 shows so far. Do you guys feel, though, I mean, I talked about like how kind of exhausted I am with this movie. It, do you get the vibe a lot of people kind of feel that way with it now? I would think so. And, yeah, I, and I, I, don't, I don't mean that as a criticism of the pick. I think it's a great pick, and I think it would have been hard to not have it on the list right. but at the same time i feel like people are a little weary of this one i do yeah. think people are there and that's i would think it's really worthy of like a almost a reevaluation at this point because most of us have watched it like like you said over the past 20 years is just you know little clips here and there at family functions see i feel like we maybe need to put as a country put it away for about 10 years then, just then bring it, it back just out no don't, don't do that i mean we could just break it down and watch some of the vignettes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right jordan number one well so i think more like a christmas gory <laughs> good, that's a good good segue. A Christmas story was directed by a man named Bob Clark. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, before Bob Clark made a Christmas story, early in his career, he was a horror director. And he directed a little movie called Black Christmas. Dang, we are killing it on the segues. Mm-hmm. So Black Christmas, Bob Clark's holiday horror masterpiece, is from 1974. It's Christmas break, and the Pi Kappa Sig sisters are dying to get back home. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) During their holiday party, a stranger sneaks into the house through the attic. Meanwhile, they are receiving lewd phone calls that are increasingly threatening. Slowly but surely, the mysterious attic guest begins picking the girls off one by one. That's really just about that simple. There's some... That's about it. <laughs> and other things. You, you pointed out that the phone calls are lewd. Oh, They're yeah. very lewd. Oh, yeah. I was taken aback by this movie was 1974. I was stunned at how like crass it was. Mm-hmm. The girls in the sorority, the, the especially the, uh, the house mom. Yeah, I think that's part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually speaks to what would come out of this movie in a weird way that mm-hmm. I'll get into in a second. Okay. I also love the tagline. Oh, the tagline's fantastic. Tell us, Gibby. If this picture doesn't make your skin crawl it's on too tight <laughs> pretty great so john carpenter's halloween is often given credit as the original holiday centric slasher film prototype and as amazing as pretty it specific. is mm-hmm. it just isn't true oh four years before halloween bob clark who would later go on to become robert clark <laughs> <laughs> as he became a more serious filmmaker he started a horror subgenre that refuses to die we've got halloween my bloody valentine thanks killing new year's evil april fool's day <laughs> Leprechaun, and the list just goes on and on. I think almost every holiday, except for Groundhog Day, has a serious slasher movie attached to it. So Bob Clark even tells this story about John Carpenter coming to him in, I guess, the mid-70s and asking him like what he would do if he was going to make a sequel to, to Black Christmas, which Bob Clark uh, swore off of horror movies after this one because he didn't want to be pigeonholed. Bob Clark told him, well, I'd have the killer uh, be in a mental institution, escape, and then hunt down the rest of the, of the victims on Halloween. Wow. And and that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? It does. And th- there 
there's so, the sounds like Twister. <laughs> the st- <laughs> you know, as soon as I saw you leaning up to your mic, I knew what you were about to do. <laughs> While Black Christmas is the direct prototype for what is now known as slasher movies, it, it isn't a cheap B movie spectacle. It's incredibly well shot. It's super well acted. There's some fairly. I mean, Margot Kidder wasn't a nobody at that point, and either was Olivia Hussey, who was in who was Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. Better last name. I see. I believe it is. And Andrea Martin from Juicy? SCTV fame. Well, that was after, but yes. Oh. Soon to be of SCTV fame. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And there, there were a ton of camera movements and things done in this movie that really hadn't been done that much before. The cameraman, Albert J. Dunk, amazing name, actually had a special rig specifically made for this movie for him where he could wear it and like climb up the side of the house for all these POV killer shots, mm-hmm. which then, of course, John Carpenter would steal for Halloween. So Olivia, so Olivia Hussey was in this. Was Joanne Slutface in this? <laughs> The sound design is is kind of crazy, and the, the, especially these phone calls are intense. Yeah, they are. It's just all like, hey, it's me again. <laughs> and Jordan and I are really freaked out for some reason. Oh, turn it off. Oh, this guy keeps calling. Yeah. <laughs> it's him again. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> That's great. Yes. That's my favorite voice I've ever heard. <laughs> This is actually crying right now. Hudson, that was the greatest Christmas gift you could have given me. Thank you. Great. I still have to get Kyle something. (laughs) Sorry, Jordan. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about me. Hello? Hello? Who is this? As we all know, I'm highly allergic to the usual feel-good, fluffy, happy, Hudson favorite Christmas movies that families get together and giggle and cry about around the holidays. So Black Christmas is the ultimate antidote to all that nonsense. And supposedly... Elvis and Priscilla used to watch this every Christmas. And now Priscilla and Lisa Marie still carry on that tradition. Mm -hmm. Wow. Lance. All right. It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Capra's 1946 classic is the story of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, the kind-hearted citizen of Bedford Falls who has spent his life giving up his own dreams so other people could live theirs. I'm I'm sorry to pause here, but I just found a segue in what you just said because Black Christmas happens in a town of Bedford. Oh. How weird is that? That is odd. We didn't plan it, you guys. No. We didn't even execute it well. (laughs) (laughs) On Christmas Eve, after his business receives a devastating blow, he believes his life to have lost meaning and contemplates suicide, only to be rescued by an angel who shows him what the world would have been like had he not been in it. I I feel like every show we have hit up to this point has had that one or two movies that you just have to include. Mm -hmm. And I think when you talk about Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life has to be on there. In addition to being essential watching on Christmas, it's also regarded as one of the greatest American films, taking the number 20 spot on AFI's most recent list of the greatest American movies. They also ranked it as the number one most inspirational film of all time. There are two things I'm reminded of each time I watch this, and and the first one is odd given what I just said. It's a a movie that's inextricably linked with Christmas, but it's not really a Christmas movie. It happens to take place on Christmas Eve, but that's almost irrelevant to the plot. You remember for, for the shot of the town singing around a Christmas tree, but that's only toward the end, and most of the film doesn't even happen around Christmas. You could have set this on July 4th and kind of had the same movie in a way. Second, Capra's films are known for having a certain degree of sentimentality, especially as it may, it pertains to America and the American dream. But every time I watch this film, I'm 
taken aback by how dark it is. In the first 10 minutes, we see George Bailey's a boy having the living hell beat out of him by his boss at the pharmacy, which was it legal to just beat kids back then? <laughs> In Frank Capper's America, it was. <laughs> like kids who work for you. It wasn't like it was his parents spanking him. It was like his boss. We see heartbreak over and over as Bailey gets passed over and just gives and gives of himself. And Hudson used the analogy of the giving tree in a movie. I can't remember which movie it was. I think it was, you were talking about Severus Snape. Snape. Yep. That's what George Bailey is in this movie. I said in the synopsis that he contemplates suicide, but he actually attempts suicide and is saved. And this is a 1946 film where a guy tries to kill himself. And in one of the more nightmarish scenes, we see him running through a town where no one knows him, capped off by this incredible up-close shot of his face as he realizes the horror of what's happening that I think rivals shots I've seen in a lot of horror films. And, and that plays into a theory I have on why this movie works so well for Christmas, even though, like I said, it's not much of a Christmas movie. Um, seasonal depression is a huge thing in our culture, and I think people around Christmas, and for a variety of reasons, they start to question the value and meaning of their life. And this is such a life-affirming film that is blasted everywhere at a time where people are wondering if their life matters. And it's a film that says, yes, your life has meaning. You matter. The world needs you. It's a Christmas movie because it delivers a message to people that I think is most needed around Christmas time. And, you know, we've never been shy about opening up on this show. And as someone who struggled with depression and suicide in my own life, this film holds a special place for me. And it's an important reminder, as I think it is for a lot of people, that the world would be a worse place without us in it. All right, that's it for the serious stuff. So two unintentionally hilarious scenes in this movie. <laughs> um, first, there's a scene where George Bailey completely snaps on his kids. And it doesn't diminish him as a character on eyes because you've watched this man get beat down for two hours and just take it. So you're at the breaking point with him, but it's still hilarious. George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, Troy. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell frankincense? I don't know. I ask your mother. Is this the sort of thing we pay taxes for, to have, teacher, have teachers like you, stupid, silly, careless people, that send our kids home without any clothes on? She's hung up. I'll hang her up. Dad, how do you spell hallelujah? How should I know? What do you think I am, a dictionary? Tommy, stop that. Stop it. Janie, haven't you learned that silly tune yet? You play it over and over again. Now stop it. Stop it. I think my favorite line in there is when he says, why do we have to have all these kids <laughs> in front of his kids? <laughs> Second, when the angel puts him in the world where he was never born so he can see what it would have been like, a cop tries to arrest him. Bailey hits the cop, which is not a good thing. You shouldn't hit cops. No. But then he runs. Instead of, chasing, that instead of chasing him or calling other cops to help, the cop pulls his firearm, yells, get down, everyone, to the large crowd that's all around him. And, then, and within one second of issuing that warning, and before anyone can get out of the way... He starts opening fire at George, who is right next to multiple other people. Well, that doesn't sound familiar in today's world at all. Oh, boy. We just got oh, topical. <laughs> ruin that. <laughs> One other note. This film flopped at the box office, and due to a clerical error in the copyright office, the copyright was not renewed in 1974, and it became public domain. That meant TV stations could run the film basically for free during the holidays, which they did, and that's why it was played constantly on TV for so many years, which led to it being rediscovered by audiences and eventually becoming such a beloved Christmas film. So it may have been a clerical error that is the reason that this film is wow. even known. Otherwise, we might not have heard of it. Whoa. Well, it's interesting you say that it was bomb and I I had heard that and read that but it was still nominated for a couple of Academy Awards I mean Capra was nominated for best director and best picture wasn't it well that that <laughs> yeah, kills that best picture right. and best actor no. and best director and best sound and best film well, it, it, I mean, bombed, it, it bombed it bombed in there it, it didn't yeah. win so it bombed yeah, yeah. It, maybe that's what you mean what, I think what well, I'm saying is every movie every movie that doesn't win best picture bombs right. <laughs> that's the argument I'm yeah. making yeah I absolutely love this movie and I feel like this might be one of the first movies watching as a kid that was like one of the first like black and white movies or first older movies that I just fell in love with and like got in the same way that I got modern movies you know what I mean? 
Uh, I somehow have never seen this movie. I don't understand. This. I'm amazing. I'm 35 years old. <laughs> Do you want to see it, or is this? Are you one oh, of those I'd, people who's no, like? I'd, I'd be happy. I've never to see seen it. Star Wars. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, if you no. really loved Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I would think you'd love this. Oh, I think I think I would. The title does turn me off. I'll put that out there. That's part of the reason I haven't like sought it you, out. You probably. brought you brought that up before we started the show tonight, and I never thought about what a bad title it is. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. It's terrible. It sounds like like a movie that has no struggle or conflict in it. If you had, if you were to rename It's a Wonderful Life, what would you call it? Why do we have to have all these kids? Uh, <laughs> what's everybody excited about? Well, the last time I did excited about somebody made fun of me, so I don't even know if I'm going to open And if up. you get excited about something dumb again, I'll make fun <laughs> of you for, th- for that. So what are you excited about, Gibby? Guys, I'm excited about Christmas. This is my favorite holiday, and it's right here around the corner. I'm excited about being with family, being with those I love, and just hanging out. and. Mm-hmm. <sighs> <laughs> Did you get really reflective or regretful? Like sad. What was that sigh? Who knows? <laughs> I am really excited about watching some movies that I just want to watch to watch them. Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> I started back with Netflix DVD subscription right before we started doing this podcast, and I have had the same those same two DVDs that I got at first just sitting right there next to my DVD player for the entire time that we've done this podcast because I don't have any time to watch just the movies that I want to watch. I am excited about uh, you remember in our time travel episode, we talked about a filmmaker named Zal Batman Gleige and Brit Marling. Batman Gleige. Yeah. <laughs> he made that name I up. don't remember yeah. Zal Batman Gleige. Batman Gleige. He uh, directed... Is that like, like, quote, Zal, quote, Batman, quote, Gleige? Yeah, it's a French crime fighter. <laughs> that is not what it is. He directed Sound of My Voice and his uh, co-writer, Brit Marling. They have a new TV show out on Netflix, I believe, like next week, or it will have already come out by the time this episode's out. But Brit Marling and her collaborators are, have made some of my very favorite films, so I'm extremely excited about this uh, TV show. Oh, and it's called The OA or The OA. I'm not sure how they're saying the it. So it's the OA. It's like the OC, but... Yeah. Like and I know nothing about it, which is why it's pretty exciting. I'm surprised somebody else mentioned this, but I guess I'll go for it. I'm excited about Rogue One. Um, it will have already been released. Are you really excited time. about it? Well, yeah, I, I think so because I didn't love Episode Seven. I thought it was kind of. Eh. This looks like a movie that hits that what I want Star Wars to be. Huh. So yeah, I, I'm excited about seeing it. I think it'll be interesting. I think it's a nice little take. I've been a little skeptical of this whole Disney taking over Star Wars thing because I was afraid they were going to run it into the ground, which they might they still. still are. Yeah, they, they yeah. probably still will. I am getting a little tired of seeing like stormtroopers and car ads, but that's a little <laughs> annoying. But it could be a good film. That was the end. Yeah, Christmas guys, it's over. That's it. I would like to thank all the people that have listened to what is now over 12 hours of material that we've put yes. out into the world. Half of one full day. Mm-hmm. You could spend your whole day with us, the whole time you're awake. Yeah, I don't want mm-hmm. to. If you sleep 10 to 12 I don't hours even want to spend my whole day with you guys. <laughs> of course you don't. Yeah, you do. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and a very happy holidays to you all. Yeah, and a happy new year. And a happy new year. Merry Christmas. And Thank you. Happy Hanukkah and all the Did other Did we holidays. hit all the holidays? <laughs> yeah. Merry all of it, everyone. Yeah. Happy the rest of it. Thanks for joining us for these first 12 episodes. Plenty more to come. And we'll see you next At year. At least Thanks, 12 guys. more to come. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Harry Carey. Let us know how your list differs at Fightaboutsfilm on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at Fightaboutsfilm at gmail.com. Hey, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Hey, if you were a hot dog, 
Would you eat your slave? 